Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. And um, this was the psalm that we read a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning when we, we did our service with no music. And so we're going we're gonna to read that, but just for the sake of brevity, um, we're going to read that one line that's repeated over and over again. We're just going to read it once, okay? Is that going to offend anybody if we do that? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Miss Evelyn, go for it. Anybody else have a praise? Let's not miss an opportunity tonight to give thanks to the Lord. If he's work in your life and you'd like to share. Yeah. All right. Let's look at Psalm 136 tonight. I said I'm going to read. Um, I'll read that, that uh, follow-up verse at the beginning, and then we'll read it again at the end, okay? All right. This might be a little tricky, so... Give me a little bit of grace. Psalm 136 here. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, and the moon uh, and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his, I almost read it there, his love endures forever, and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down the great kings and killed the mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. All right, tonight, um, let's talk about this psalm. We're, we're getting ready for Thanksgiving, and um, I don't know if you've noticed it, but, but Thanksgiving is... Uh, a time for giving thanks, right? Everybody with me on that? So we're called to do that. And um, I wanted to start with this thought. People assume that passing time equals progress, okay? And passing time does not equal progress. It's not the same thing. In fact, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but when the Roman Empire fell, the world plunged into dark ages. And uh, I was reading this last week. Rod Dreher says that when Rome fell, it took Europe five or six centuries to relearn how to build roofs the way the Romans did. So there was some kind of knowledge that was lost. And we have advances today in technical knowledge and science and education and medicine, communication. Um, all those things signal progress. But that doesn't progress in one area doesn't guarantee progress in another area. Are you with me? So you can go forward in one way, but backwards in another. And um, what about in regards to morality? Are we going forward or backward, do you think? Okay. 
And, uh, yeah, what about well-being? Are we going forward or backward? What about family relationships, forward or backward? Do you think we're better off now than we were 100 years ago in terms of family relationships? Okay, so there's some things that at the same time that we're making progress, we can assume that progress in one area equals progress in all areas, and it's not the case. In fact, uh, in regards to biblical knowledge, I think we've gone backwards in our culture. We don't know as much as, say, the, the average believer 100 years ago knew more than the average believer knows today about the Bible. Okay, so it's not, it's not uh, that when we have progress in one area, it's equal to progress in all areas. And knowledge of God can be lost too, as history will show. So think about this for a moment. <clears throat> I don't know if you've read the book of Judges, but there's this place in the book of Judges, um, chapter 18, 19, 20, uh, right in there where it looks as if the nation of Israel is worse than the nations around them. Okay? There's violence in the streets. People can't feel safe. Like this one guy is traveling with his concubine. He comes to a city square in the tribe of Benjamin, somewhere around Gibeah. I think it's actually Gibeah where Saul is from. And uh, they stop there. This may have actually even been in Saul's lifetime because judges and the lifetime of Saul overlap Okay, just a little bit. And so... Um, this traveler goes in, and somebody comes out and meets him and says, you can't sleep here in this town square. It's not safe. And they're in the land of Israel. They're in the, the land among the people who should know the Bible and know all that they should know about God, and they, it's not safe. It's as bad as it is in pagan lands, okay? So somewhere along the line, you can't tell me that the people of Judges are doing better spiritually than they were under Moses in the wilderness, now, they might have their own houses. They might have their own allotments and their own fields and their own property and all of that. But spiritually, they're not doing better than when they were wandering in the wilderness. Are, are you with me? So we have to understand that progress in one area doesn't equal progress in another area. What about um, the miserable state of neglect that the temple and its services faced when Josiah becomes king? Do you remember Josiah becomes king? Excuse me. Becomes king after um, he's had wicked grandparents and parents and, who have been on the throne, and uh, he comes to rule. And he notices the temple is in neglect, and he starts a building program. And they say, "Hey, let's go find out what's in the temple." And so he brings some of the priests together, and they look, and they find a scroll in one of the closets in the temple, and they realize that is is probably the book of Deuteronomy. And so he starts to have it read, and pe- they're blown away, like. We've been neglecting all of this. And so they start reforming. Like, Josiah's cool because he's like, the, he's like Josiah the hammer. He brings the hammer and he busts down pagan altars. And then uh, he builds walls right where those altars were so they can't be built again. And he grinds up the bones of pagan priests and, and scatters them over the... Like, he's the reformer. And uh, he's going to get some things done. But the reason that it came to that point is because spiritual knowledge had been neglected and forgotten. And that's a tragedy, and that can still happen today. Like, we could progress an area of technology and think, hey, we're really good. We know all this about medicine. We know more about our bodies than we ever have. We know um, more about the world. We can communicate better. But we're sliding backwards spiritually. And uh, I think that's a tragic thing. We need to realize that um, 
if we're going to progress spiritually, it's going to be because we've, we've made gains and we haven't forgotten what God's taught us. Israel taught their children through repetition. <clears throat> okay, so uh, do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says something about how, how they're to teach children? Anybody remember that passage? What does it say there? Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's the Shema area. In your coming and going, okay, rising up, lying down, what's that talking about? It's talking about morning time and evening time, okay? You're to talk about it when you're traveling along the way. Do you know what they're talking about? The same thing over and over and over and over and over again, okay? And this is the way that Israel was told by God to teach their children. That that kind of approach to teaching has fallen on hard times. We don't uh, like to practice that anymore with our enlightened theories about individualism and um, relative knowledge. Uh, doesn't our culture glorify personal discovery over inherited truth? Do you think that's true? Like you go out and find for yourself what's true, not what did your parents tell you is true. Okay, so that's the way that uh, I think that's I think that's typical of our culture, but that's not the way of the Bible. The Bible is that we we uh, teach the next generation, and so those truths aren't lost, and we fall into kind of a spiritual dark ages. This psalm takes a different approach. Uh, this psalm is sometimes known as the great Hallel. I'm going to put this on the screen. You might want to write it down, okay, somewhere. Okay, anybody know what this word means? Hallel? You probably already have heard it before somewhere. Hallelujah. Okay, means praise. It's praise. And uh, this is known as the great, this psalm that we just read is the great Hallel. And so it's the great praise. In all the book of Psalms, for whatever reason, they're seeing this as the great praise. And it was read at really important times in Israel's history. It was sung in the temple during Passover, okay? And they would sing it antiphonally. What does that mean? Anybody know? Besides Dean, I'm not going to let Dean chime in on this one. He knows. Yeah, what's antiphonal singing? Back and forth. It's a call and a response. Usually the priest would sing what we what I read tonight, and then the congregation would sing back, His love endures forever. And that can be a really moving way to learn truth. It can. Not just not just dictated truth, but sung truth. And and that's the way that this often was done in the temple during the Passover festival at some point. But not only was it done then, but it was also sung in the home during Passover. So in the temple during Passover, but in the home also. They would follow the Egypt Hillel, uh, where they would, or the Egyptian Hillel, where they would reflect upon their coming out of Egypt, and then they would sing this song next. Okay, so this is part of that Passover meal. And what that means is that it was sung both across the whole people of God and, catch this, also in homes among the nuclear family. So the whole people of God would sing about how great God is and that His love endures forever. But so would moms and dads and sons and daughters and grandparents. They would sing that sitting around the table with their feet shod, right? They got to be ready to go. Their their loins girt, which meant that they had their their uh, gowns pulled up, ready to run as symbolic staff in hand, and they're eating the Passover meal, and they're thinking about this. And so it was sung in this, these two settings. And what this psalm does, I think, is 
it's sung repetitively so that God's people would not forget this knowledge about him. This psalm helps to correct the nearsighted faith of today. A lot of uh, people are not living with a robust, um, big foundation kind of faith. They're living in this frail, emotional, momentary faith. You you know what the difference is there? It's like, this is how I feel right now, and that's how God is, and we view God through the lens of how we feel at this moment. And that's not a robust faith. And that's not a biblical faith, and that's not a Psalm 136 faith. That's a, that's a modernistic or even postmodernistic, uh, self-expressive like, individualistic faith. Like, this is what I feel, and all truth is defined by how I feel at this moment. That's not biblical faith. And this psalm helps to correct that because, you know, nearsightedness only can see what's close up, but farsightedness can see far. And, and we understand that having the proper vision will help us to see beyond this particular moment, okay? So the nearsighted faith of today is about individual emotional experience rather than what has been revealed through time and history to the people of God. You will hear people say, if you haven't already, I don't believe in organized religion. I don't practice organized religion. Anybody heard that before? The organized religion thing. Somebody coined that, and then it just took off. And what we basically mean is we don't want any revealed or inherited truth. We want to kind of feel our way through this esoterically or emotionally. We want to discover all of this for ourselves. The problem is that if you developed all knowledge that way without any authority in your life, every generation would have to start over with an alphabet. Come on, true? Every generation would have to start over with knowledge. We could make no progress at all. We could never glean from the, the findings and discoveries of people who've gone before us. We could, never, we could never be a beneficiary of collective truth, okay? There's a testimony that happens when you have folks, your parents followed the Lord, and they said, this is what's been true in my day. Find out for yourself if this echo doesn't happen in your life as well, okay? So, it's, it's more than just, I'm going to discover all of this for myself. The beauty of Christianity is that all revealed truth, if we trust in God, we will come to see that echoed in our life as well. You know what I mean by that? Like, it's not just yes, a yesterday faith. What God did before, He does those things again, but we can't act like that it's all, it's all new with us. Okay? So this psalm, I think, deals with with that, you'll hear people say, uh, I, be- I don't believe in organized religion. Um, and what they mean is that they want this to be an individual emotional thing. But individual emotional experience is a, danger- is a dangerous place to put your faith. The psalm does, um, shows that God is good based on collective evidence of all of history. So to put it another way, God's creation benefits you. Um, the provision that God gives uh, is provision for you. And you might even say, well, I wasn't there. Um, you, know, you weren't born, but all of the things that God did in one way or another affects who you and I are. The placement in the land, what, what was the point of all of that? Well, I, I don't know if you thought about this, but you might think, well, that happened to Israel. I wasn't born yet, and I'm not, I'm not Jewish by lineage. So what does that have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you because God put Israel in the land as the intersection for the whole world. Do you know that? 
It's a land bridge between three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, right there. So God's unique placement of Israel right there was to establish the coming of Jesus at the epicenter of humanity so that all people could know the goodness of God and his salvation. So it, it all matters. This psalm builds a base for our faith that spreads across time. It's broad. We're not standing on this narrow sliver of emotional faith. We're standing on the broad revelation of what God has done through all of history as we look at this psalm. And uh, this is how Israel saw it. Even people not yet born would sing about this. By the time this psalm came along, nobody who was there uh, at the Exodus was there to sing this song. Did you know that? This is all their descendants. Okay, when this psalm came about, nobody who had been through the wilderness experience was there to sing this song. This is all of their children. And all of their children sang this as if it's their song. Do you understand what I mean by that? That the experience of yesterday's faithful is our experience as the people of God too because we are that people, okay? We're part of that people. And I think this is a better way of doing faith, understanding this is our story too. Then how do I feel about God right now? This is a better way of doing faith than that. Uh, He is great and has uh, constantly done great things and that has proven his love. All right, let's look at these verses and take some lessons from this, and then we'll, um, I want to share something at the end here. All right, look at verses 1 through 3 with me. We'll just read the, um, the first lines of those. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. What's the, what's the common element in all of those verses, 1 through 3? Give thanks. Good, good. Give, give thanks. And here's the, here's the Hebrew word if you want to know it. They don't have vowels in Hebrew. Vowels are placed there by sounds, phonetic sounds. And so it's yada. And in fact, this word, uh, there's a, a way that kind of the, the Jewish mind works. And you see this again and again in Scripture. And I'll give you an example of this. When Judah was born... Uh, I will call him Ju- I will call him Judah, and I will yada the Lord. So there's a, a similar sound that goes along with this, and it it's kind of a play on words. And this happens again and again in Scripture, like laughter and Yitzhak. Those two sound very much alike. Um, and so you can see this again and again. Yada is the word here for give thanks, and it's mentioned in the first three verses. But I would like you to notice here is just look through this in Psalm 136, and you'll see that it's not said on every line, but it's implied on every line. Because the next line, verse 4, to him who does great wonders, to him what? Give thanks. Okay? And jump, jump down to any verse. Uh, how about verse 10? To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. To him what? What's the verb? Yada. To give thanks. Each one of those follows that. It doesn't say it. It's an inclusio, which means that even though it's not stated there, uh, it's implied in every single line of this psalm. Give thanks. Every single line. It's said in the first three verses, and then after that, the psalmist is like, okay, you know where we're going with this. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. What does he want us to do? To give thanks. And so it's implied. It's implied in every verse 
of this passage. Give thanks in, in the way that we would understand this probably mean, um, we would probably interpret this to mean uh, tell about something. Okay, that, that's true, but give thanks here is not the whole meaning of this word, uh, which introduces not only each of the first three lines, but also every line. Uh, the basic meaning is when you give thanks is to confess or acknowledge, okay? So what this means is that before, and, and I kind of said this a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning, that when we praise, we praise uh, or we worship through our song, okay? The song, apart from the worshiper, is not worship. Do you understand what I mean by that? If the song sits idle on the side, that's not worship. You have to apply your heart and your voice to it, and then it becomes worship, okay? So we worship through a song. And in a similar way, just saying words is not the giving of thanks. There has to be an acknowledgement of God's greatness. And then when that happens, then we can truly give thanks. And so it starts with acknowledgement, like when you sit down to eat and you and you look at your plate and you go, there's food on my plate. This is a wonderful night. I, have, I get to have a meal. How did that get there? Was it just because I'm such a good worker? Or is there more to it than that? Remember what God said in Deuteronomy, that he is the one who gives you the ability to make wealth. He's the one who enables us to do these things, not just there's some people that are working really hard in different places around the world, and they're barely making enough to eat. So it's not about how hard you've worked. There's a lot of opportunities that have been provided for us that don't come down to us. They come down to the blessing of God and decisions that have been made prior to our being there, and we benefit from those things. But he's asking us to give thanks. And so he calls upon us to acknowledge through thoughtful and grateful worship, who God is, <clears throat> by spelling out what we know or found out about God's glory and deeds. So when we give thanks, it's more than just saying the words. It's an acknowledgement that what we have is truly from God. Okay, Look at uh, the next part here. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. To the Lord, for He is good. This is the Hebrew word for Lord here. What is that? Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. And if you, if you have a modern translation, you'll see this capitalized. I say this every time, but I think it's sometimes missed. And I want to say it again. When you see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, or in the New for that matter, it's the, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Okay, and Yahweh is the personal revealed name of God. He's telling us something about his character. This is different from the Lord that we're going to see in verse 3. Okay? There's a different word that's used there. When we see it here, one of the reasons it's, it's said Lord in English is because there's a reticence to say Yahweh in a way that would be in vain. Okay? So we don't, want to, we don't want to abuse that personal name that's been revealed that tell us, tells us the nature and the character of God. But he says, uh, give thanks to Yahweh. When, what this means, this is the covenant God who has revealed himself, okay? We might like to figure out who God is, like we're grasping into the air, into the ether, and, and trying to put the pieces together and figure out. And I think this uh, way a lot of man-made religion 
comes to be is that people just figure it out through their own ingenuity and go, well, this is what I think God's like. But that's not biblical religion. Biblical teaching is that God has made himself known, okay? And him making himself known is always superior to our figuring him out. Do you agree? If somebody thinks they know you and they've guessed wrong about what your intentions were, who knows better about that, you or them? We do. Like I'd say, well, that's not why I did that. But you did this. Yes, but that's not why I did that. I'm telling you from my heart, this is my intention in doing that. And you can reveal who you are in that way. And even more so, God can reveal who he is better than we can figure him out. Okay? If there's ever a challenge between what we've figured out about God and what God says about himself, we better go with him and what he said first and foremost. Okay? So he's shown himself to be Yahweh and uh, his covenant love sh- is shown to be good to his people. Notice his, uh, you thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. His covenant love brings good to his people. He is good is more than just an abstraction about God. Like he's, you know, he's good. This is not that. This is not, this is not that kind of watered down characterization that sometimes we get. Like, you know, he's a pretty good guy. It's not that. This is a character that is going to be demonstrated all through this psalm, okay? God is good is going to be met with proof after proof after proof in Psalm 136 that he is good. And his goodness goes beyond what you presently think you need from him. He's even better than that. And I, uh, I want to try to make that point in just a moment. But the goodness of God is not an ivory tower attribute it's goodness that gets down into the grainy textures of life um, through daily needs and international disturbances. It still works its way down into the practical concerns of his people where they live, you and me. Okay? There's a lot going on in the world right now, and God's goodness finds us. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever heard somebody say, I can't talk to God about my problem? I mean, he's got wars to deal with and all this other stuff that's on this grand scale. Anybody heard somebody, you ever felt yourself thinking those thoughts? <clears throat> well, God's goodness finds us in the midst of the mess. There's a lot going on, but he can, he can find you where you're at, and he can get down into the nitty-gritty areas of our lives. Okay? Um, he works his way down into our practical concerns where we live. And when, we are, uh, when the people of God were living in the promised land, they often took for granted how they got there, just as we do. Like, we're leaving the blessing, and after we've been at it long enough, sometimes we forget that we don't deserve this. You with me? Like, this is, any of God's goodness is not deserved. And after a while, we can feel like, well, I kind of deserve it. I am pretty good, and I deserve this. No, we don't. This is still blessing. This is still God's acting first in kindness towards us. And so the people of God found themselves in the promised land, Israel, and they took for granted how they got there. <clears throat> and what they're called to do is to remember that it wasn't always so, but God worked his good, his good work, and he brought them into an inheritance, just as he does with you and me. 
no one could have asked for this much. And this is this is where I was going with that in a, a moment ago, is that God's goodness is beyond our ability to ask. He can do uh, seeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that's at work within us, the book of Ephesians says. Which means that whatever you can imagine of his goodness, his goodness can go further than that. Not only can it, but it does. Because he out-envisions you and me in terms of goodness. Like, we would just want this little bit. And God's like, that's not enough. I'm going to give you more. Okay? And don't interpret that in a selfish way. Listen, sometimes we are so short-sighted that we miss it. Israel, in the days of Jesus, were looking for a political liberator. And God said, that's not good enough. Because all we'll do is place one political regime after another. What I'm going to give you is eternal. I'm going to give you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's better than what they were looking for by just getting the Romans out. And you can see that in this psalm as well. (laughs) See, uh, I think as you think about this, we think about this, it occurred to me that God's greatness in this psalm is shown by the largeness of the plan in comparison with the little things that we often ask for. Providing us for these little things that individuals never would have thought of. And his plan goes much bigger than that. His kindness takes us further than we could have ever imagined. How many of us would have been content with something far less than God was even doing? For example, in Egypt, when it says that I've heard the groans of my people in Egypt... I think in Egypt, uh, they might have said, God, please make our sufferings lighter. They might have been content with that. And I, I think the proof of that is in this, is that when Moses started to interfere with Pharaoh, the people of Israel wanted to shut him down. Come on, anybody remember that? Please don't go to Pharaoh anymore. It's making life worse for us. Like, they were ready to go on and be slaves and just kind of get through the difficulty a little bit, and hopefully it'll be a little bit easier, and please don't trouble the waters anymore, because they couldn't envision where all of this was really going. I think there was some kind of um, understanding deep in their heart that they're supposed to go back to the promised land, but they're just content not to have to work so hard. Come on, we pray for things like that, like, Lord, just ease the load a little bit. And God's like, no, I've got something much better than that. I'm going to bust this whole thing free. I'm going to get you free. I'm going to get you out of this land. I'm going to subdue Pharaoh, and I'm going to bring you into a land, and you are going to be a bona fide people. Okay? They didn't imagine that it was going to get that good after having been enslaved and overlorded for all those years. How many of us would have been just content with something a little bit less? And I know many people were groaning, but they had no vision of the promised land. And the slavery, they just wanted the slavery not to be so hard. But God has bigger things in mind. His goodness is better than our goodness. Like we taught, we think sometimes in terms of material blessing, and the book of Ephesians says that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the beautiful part about that is, is that material blessings have a shelf life. Spiritual blessings are forever. Man, that's good news, isn't it? So he he looks beyond our ability to see. He can do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Okay, so notice now, give thanks to the God of gods here. God of gods. This is in verse 2. Okay, 
And if you see this word, we're adding the vowels here. Elohim. Okay, this is God. The God of gods. Okay, this is another more kind of generic name for God. Like, you know, God is not, I don't know if you knew this, but God is not God's name. Did you know that? It's a title. When we talk about God, it's Yahweh is his name. Jesus is the name of God's son. Okay, so when we're talking personal names, God is not it. And just like that, Elohim is not his name. This is a title about him. But it's saying something about him that he is the God of gods. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. So remember here as we're thinking about how he's God of gods, that many ancient people, for them, um, the world that they worshipped, in the ancient world, the, what they worshipped was part of creation. Uh, the Egyptians worshipped Ra. What was Ra? Anybody know? Sun god. Okay, so they were worshipping the sun, and in, um, in Ur of the Chaldees, they worshipped a moon god there. And you can see it over and over again. They worship stars and the different things. And even felt like all of their future was determined by the stars as if those were gods that were overseeing the outcomes of their lives. Elemental forces, Paul calls them. And what this is saying is that of those things, this God that we're talking about here created all of that. Okay? And the implication is is that if he made these things which are worshipped by some, he's greater than that which is created, and he deserves the real worship. Are you with me? Did that make sense? Okay. Whatever he made, he's greater than. Would you accept that premise? If God made it, he's, he's greater than it. If God made the sun, he's greater than the sun. And if God made the sun, and people are worshipping that sun, he's greater than that God. I don't know. I'm excited about that because it suggests to me, I know we just kind of take this for granted because we know it, but in the ancient world, there was, it seemed to be a worldview clash about what should be worshipped. I still think sometimes we worship the sun in our culture, and the sun comes out, and we're like going crazy with it. People drive slower for whatever reason so they can look at it. The sun is out. We're here in Alaska. But he is the God of gods. Look at verses 4 through 9 here. And I want you to notice that in, this, uh, in these verses, the Psalms follows the order of creation. <clears throat> okay, verse 4 through 9. To him who alone does great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. I'm getting into the next section here, but he's the God of gods. He made all of this. These are not um, scientific descriptions. These are poetic descriptions. But the point is that God made them, and he alone and no one else has done these great wonders. The heaven are a source of wonderment, and they are also a source of nourishment to his people that he created. And God is the one who put all that in place, and so he cares for us through it. 
If he made these things, sometimes worshiped by some, he's greater than all of that. He's the God of gods. When it says he's God of gods, it means that you can put all the other gods down there. Our God's greater. Okay, He wants them to know that. And he needs Israel to know that. Why do you think it's important that Israel would know that or that we would know that? Yeah. Okay. If you got the best God, why are you going to go for something less? Right? If you, I mean, if, you're, if you've got the, the, the God of all gods, this is not even a statement that says those gods are real. This is saying that whatever other people worship, God is superior to all of that. So he wants them to know that. He mentions the different areas of creation, the, the sun and the moon and the, um, the great lights. Okay, All of these things, God, he created them and he's greater than them. And we need to understand him as the Lord of creation. Let me say this, it's not directly... <coughs> Related to this, but if we lose the understanding that God is creator, as some people have through belief in macroevolution that we just spontaneously evolved, we have no accountability to him. But if he made all of this, I don't care how far you run or what you say about him, we still owe it all to him. Okay? So we need to understand he is the God of creation. Okay? Notice the next thing. He's Lord of Lords here. He says, Lord of Lords in verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. And we'll look at verses 10 through 22 with that as well. And let's hit that as we go along. But remember that the kings often thought of themselves as appointed by their, their own gods. And when we talk about lords, we're talking about those who are in some kind of authority. And, when, and God says that he is the Lord of Lords, or when it says of him that he is the Lord of Lords, it means that he is Lord over all other authorities. Um, let's look at some of the different portions of this. Uh, he mentions deliverance in these different areas from his enemies. Okay, verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and the armies into the Red Sea to him who led his people through the wilderness. That takes us into the next part here. But I'd like you to notice in this <clears throat> deliverance from the enemy, from. Okay, so here Lord is... This word, Adonai, okay? Before when we saw it in all caps, what was it? Yahweh. When you see it in not all caps, this is the word in the Old Testament. It's Adonai. Okay, you'll see that or hear that quite a bit. In fact, it was often a substitute word so that uh, the Jewish people didn't have to say the personal name of God. They would say Adonai (coughs) in place of that, but... When it says that he's the Lord over lords, that whatever authorities or kings there are, you could substitute kings for this in a way, that he is the king of all kings. That's a New Testament um, way of describing this, especially the book of Revelation, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the king over all of these authorities. 
And so when he delivered, he delivered from the enemy through miraculous circumstances. Verse 10, look at what it says there. It says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. <coughs> what's, that? what's that referring to? <clears throat> the firstborn, striking down the firstborn of Egypt. The Passover, okay? And the Passover was, was one of the, what? Ten plagues, the last one, the culmination of all of those, right? All of the plagues. And I'm going to suggest here that the, um, this statement is shorthand for all the plagues, okay? He delivered through a mighty hand from Egypt, and the psalmist only needs to mention the last one, and everybody else's mind will remember that there were nine other plagues that went before this, that God used this and culminated with the last one to get the people his people free from Egypt. Notice there's deliverance from the enemy. The purpose is expressed in verse 11, and he tells us um, that he delivered them from Egypt in order to what? In verse 11, to bring them out, right? And, and Moses says this to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me in the place that I'll show them. So he's calling them out. He's not just freeing them from, he's freeing them to. This is an important part of Christian understanding is that God doesn't just free from, he frees to purpose. Does that make sense? He's not just delivering us from all shackles and bonds and chains. He's giving us freedom for purpose, to do something else. Okay, That's important. He's delivering us not just from, but to something He's going to bring them out. Verse 12, uh, he did all of this with active power. Notice uh, it says there, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Okay, God, It's not necessary for God to have an actual hand and arm here. This is a poetic way of saying that by God's power, he accomplished these things. It's a, an anthropomorphism where we understand something about God by relating to us. The right hand is the hand of power, right? Remember Benjamin when he was born? Um, they wanted to call, his mom wanted to call him Ben-Oni, son of my suffering. Remember that? And <laughs> Jacob's like, no, no, no. We're going to call him Benjamin, son of my right hand, son of my strength, son of my power. So right hand is God doing all of this by his active power. He doesn't necessarily have to move pieces around with uh, literal hands. All he has to do is speak the word, and these things are accomplished. But it's saying here in a uh, poetic way that God is working through power. Notice in verse 13 through 14, moving quickly through this, um, he divided the sea asunder. And he brought Israel through the midst of it. And the point that I wanted to make here is that God delivers from, but he delivers through natural barriers. There's some natural barriers. Israel came to the edge of the Red Sea. The, the Egyptian army with Pharaoh were pursuing. They were, they were caught in a place where they couldn't go anywhere. And it looked like there was no way to get anywhere. But God made a way where there was no way. Right? He opened the sea up. Through a natural barrier, he made a way. And this is, uh, to me, is an awesome way that God repeats again and again 
is that what we see as natural barriers are not obstacles to God. He finds ways around them. And that, now, surely there's a, an exciting story or two within this place of the ways that God's done that. He brought Israel through the midst of it. And then in verse 15, he closed the door on the enemy through that same means. It was deliverance to one, and it was, um, it was victory or defeat to the other. Okay? This, I think, is such a cool thing is that God with great economy can accomplish his purposes where with one thing he can both provide victory and he can shut the door on the enemy. And he did that same thing through the cross, didn't he? Through one means, he defeated the enemy and purchased our salvation. Through one means. And it didn't look like the way that it should be. It didn't look like the Son of God should be going to the cross. All the disciples were discouraged and disappointed by this. And it was God's very means of providing salvation. Verse 16, I'd like you to notice that he delivers through natural obstacles here to him who led the people through the wilderness. I don't know if you've thought about this, but this is a lot. Uh, There's a lot more to this than we may realize. The wilderness presents a place where there already, there's already natural problems at getting water in these areas, in this area of the world. But you go through the wilderness, and you don't know where you're going, and you don't know where to get a source of water, and you're dead. Okay, so this is like going through the never-never or something like that, some kind of desert where you can't find any water at all. And here, um, God led them through that. Not only that, but how are they going to eat, especially for 40 years? Well, God provided for that too. He provided water and he provided food through what was a natural barrier. I think it's wonderful to see that, that he can do that for us again. You'll see in the wilderness that he offers protection from the elements I like uh, the fact that it says that their shoes never wore out. Remember that? So everybody's walking around with like 30-year-old tennis shoes in the wilderness. I don't know if you thought about that. All the styles, all the styles have changed, but, but they're still in good shape. They're still in good working order. And um, he provides protection from the sun and protection from the cold. You ever thought about that? Remember the pillar by, by night and the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day? You know, that was more than just a visible sign of leadership. It was also a natural protection. So the desert gets cold at night. A fire by night will warm things up. The desert gets hot during the day. You know what would help? Cloud. Everywhere God led, he was protecting them. And so there's a practical concern. Spirituality is practical. It's not just spooky and ooh. There's some reasons for all of this. And then there was provision from the lack, and there was purpose. He's bringing them into the promised land. I'd like you to notice that when it talks about the wilderness, it doesn't talk about any of the rebellions or the giving of the law. I don't know why, other than this is just focusing upon God's goodness time after time through this. And then he talks about deliverance over the kings. I want to hurry with this. Verses um, 17 through 22. Notice uh, it says there in verse 17, to him who struck down the great kings, and killed the mighty kings. That sounds like a weird line for a worship song, doesn't it? Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to the servants, his servant Israel, 
and he remembered us in our lowest day. That gets us into that next section here. But here there are the first and the mighty kings of the Canaanites. And you can see um, when Israel comes into the promised land, they go south around the Dead Sea, south and or they go around the south end of the Dead Sea, and they come up on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, did you know that when they're getting ready to enter the Promised Land, they go onto the east side and they're getting ready to cross into the Jordan River, and they ran into this king who was obstinate and decided he wanted to attack them, and his name was Sihon. And Sihon just decided he's going to muster all of his troops and go to war with Israel. And God said, well, I've got something to say about that. And Sihon was probably, Sihon and Og were two mighty kings, and these may have been the very kings that the Israelite spies saw and said, we cannot defeat these guys. They're too big for us. And so they spent 40 years in the wilderness and then take two. And they come through, and God gives them victory over these kings. In Joshua 12, there's actually a list of 31 kings that Israel dispatches through God's help. But it mentions these two powerful kings in the region, Og and Sihon. Israel, a generation previous, might have uh, balked at this. But in Numbers 21, it says these two kings picked fights with Israel, and Israel overthrew Sihon. And then it says in the last verse of that section that they settled in the land of the Amorites. Okay? What does it say here? It says he overthrew the mighty kings and he gave their land as an inheritance. This is shorthand for all of that. And then it tells us in the very next section in Numbers 21 that they went to battle against Og, king of Bashan, and they destroyed him. And then it says this, these exact words, they took possession of his land. So the inheritance, that's what this is, is that these two kings, mightier than anything Israel could throw at them, were defeated because God was on their side. And I think there's something powerful to be said about that. No matter how big the enemy is, God's able to defeat them. And this is part of Israel's story, and it's part of our story as well. We have an enemy too, an enemy who is terrible and devastating to a lot of lives. But we're not intimidated because our God's bigger. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we can count on the fact that he's already won that victory. In verse 26 He is hero over our need. 23 through 25 talks about his continuous care. Whenever Israel suffered, the history of redemption continued despite that suffering, despite that difficulty, but despite not seeing God as clearly as they hoped. The work of God continued through that, just as with us. We might not feel him in our momentary need, but he's there and he's working and he's doing good. Okay. The acts of God, you can see in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the conquest of the land, they're all a sampling of his power and his purpose. And he calls for us to look to him. Just look at those last verses here. He remembered us in our lowest state. He freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. The God of heaven is the one we look to in time of need. His love endures forever. This uh, psalm, it calls us to look back to the God of history and the personal experience that we, uh, he's both God of history and personal experience, and that we understand that we are privileged to experience his gracious love. We're caught in the middle of the story here because there's more to the story. We haven't gotten to the coming of Jesus yet and the redemption that he provides, but that redemption is supposed to be 
uh, available to all of mankind. That through this, what God was doing with Israel, he was really doing for the world. Do you remember God said to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations will be brought into the favor of God. Anyone who trusts from any tongue or tribe or language can know God and be friends by God, be forgiven by God because of what Christ has done. So this story that we're reading about is all the setup for what you and I experience in Jesus. It's all part of that. And so we ought to be thankful. It is God's purpose to redeem. I thought before we go tonight, would you mind if I took about five more minutes here? I wanted to share something I found today. Okay, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but this is a waymaker in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. Okay, so I want to share this because you know we're going. There's a lot of trouble in the world right now, and sometimes we're taking sides with this. In light of last week's lesson, it's God's desire to save everyone. Do you know that? Okay, so this guy over here uh, in the brown jacket, he's going to be singing in Arabic. This girl right here is going to be singing in Hebrew, and then he's going to be singing in English. Are you guys interested? Okay, here we go. Amen. Amen. It's beautiful, isn't it? God is, Christ is Lord of all, and he wants to draw people from every tongue and tribe and nation to worship him. Hey, thanks for your attention tonight. Let's stand and have a word of prayer. Lord, we ask that you help us to remember, to give thanks, Lord, not just to say the words, but that our heart would reflect upon all that you've done for us and that our story is part of the great story that you've been working through all of history, even before there were humans around to appreciate it, that you were working and creating and redeeming. And we want to be a part of that and we want to communicate that to others as well, that they might know who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.